Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the opportunity simply to be in this part of Your creation. It is Your world. And You're taking us to a new world. And we're reminded of it this week. Just seeing the, the trees, even though they're bare. Breathing air, even though it's cold. Just being out in Your creation refreshes and renews us. We're deeply grateful for this. We're thankful to have the fellowship of other believers and believers who are committed to engagement in Your ministry in various places. Thank You for all the experiences You've given us and for the wisdom that we now can share with one another and the encouragement and, and exhortation that we can give to one another. We pray that this retreat will be a stepping stone to greater ministry. That You'll prepare us to go back and to re-engage uh, the young men and women, the students who are before us. And we lift them up even now. That You'll bless them by blessing us during this time. So that we have more to give them. And Lord, we pray that You'll even now, while we're apart from them, open their hearts to the Gospel. Open their hearts to the Word of God. And we pray that in days to come, we may see genuine spiritual revival taking place. A mighty harvest among the students to whom we minister. So Lord, bless these men and women. Bless our time together, please. For we pray in the name of the Master Himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, Your Son, our Lord. Amen. Is this thing on? Is it helping you all? Is that help? Can you hear me okay? I'm trying to project, but if you can't hear, just raise your hand and wave. Folks, um, last week, uh, you know, Beeson, those of you from Birmingham know Beeson Divinity School, you know, which is part of Sanford University. It was right across the street from our church. The faculty had their retreat in our church building, and they asked, would you just come at lunch and talk to the faculty about the components of a thriving ministry? So it forced me to take some time to try to summarize what I think after 40 years uh, in ministry and to, to boil it down. So I'm going to give you roughly what I gave them. And um, then I'm, I'm really looking for your questions because uh, you know, we won't have time to go into too many details, so we want to go into the details you want to talk about. So why don't I give you what I think are the, the buckets uh, that we might consider for a thriving ministry. And I noticed as I got into my 60s some years ago, people started asking me more frequently, um, you know, what's the secret to longevity, you know, enduring in ministry? And I thought, well, I'm not through yet. I'm not sure I know. Uh, you know, when you read about Solomon, you know, even old men can do dumb things and uh, really squander a lifetime of, of blessings of God. So I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but... But it's worth talking about because one thing I noticed about uh, the long road is that you have to begin that way. You, know, you begin with an intention of enduring. You're not waiting till you get old and figure out how to, how to do it when you're old. It, it's, no, it's, you've been on this path all your life. So it really starts now. You know, with your devoting yourself to Jesus Christ, to His mission, to His Word, and to prayer, to a life of holiness, a life of enjoying Him, a life of experiencing His grace, you're committed to it. 
and being committed to that, and especially his being committed to you, you're, you're going to make it. You know? You're going to be an old man like me too, or an old woman. And you will look back with great, uh, with great joy at how he's not only preserved you, but continued to work through you through the years. So it really does begin in the earliest years, and it has to do with the fundamentals. Um, you know, uh, Vince Lombardi, of course, was the great football coach at the Green Bay Packers, and you know the story at the beginning of every season. When he's coaching his players, he'd just take a football and say, Gentlemen, this is a football. <laughs> so you can just start with the fundamentals. If you've read uh, anything by my basketball coach hero, John Wooden, I just think he was absolutely terrific. UCLA coach, uh, led his team to multiple NCAA championships. It'll never be equal. I think I can safely say that. I mean, just an amazing career. And uh, if you read his stuff on leadership, it's down to the fundamentals. He's always talking about fundamentals. So at the beginning of their basketball season, he started by showing his players how to put on their socks. Literally. To put them on in the right way so that you don't get blisters. Because, you know, blister can throw you out of practice for, for a week or so. So he would start by putting on your shoes and socks. So I, what I found is that the book that was written that says everything you need to know you learn in kindergarten is pretty much true. I mean, first grade Sunday school pretty much lays it out for us. You know, if we'll do what our first grade Sunday school teacher told us to do and believe what she told us to believe, we're going to be fine. So don't expect any rocket science here, something you've never heard before, because the keys to thriving in ministry, I think, are really uh, fundamental. So I'm going to assume certain things about thriving in ministry. For example, natural gifting. Uh, you have to have a certain level of IQ to do well in youth ministry. You have to have a certain level of EQ and I'm, I'm going to take that for granted. So I'm not talking about your natural gifting and assuming that, but it is essential. But I'm just assuming it. I'm going to talk about the things that are a little bit more uh, redemptive-specific or, or spiritually-specific, the spiritual components. So the first thing, here's a football, a godly life. I mean, really, how, how do we expect to be fruitful in ministry when our lives are out of sort with the Lord? The godly life is the most important thing. Uh, you may know that Aristotle uh, wrote about a number of things, but he, all, he did write about rhetoric, public speech, among other things, ethics and other things he wrote about. Uh, Aristotle said there are three components of rhetoric. You can, you can expect people like us to be interested in rhetoric, whether you're preaching from a pulpit or preaching in a youth group. Rhetoric consists, he says, of three components. One is logos, the Greek word for reason or content, logic. So you have the content of the message. He said secondly is pathos, which is the passion with which you deliver. And the third component is ethos, which is the perceived character of the communicator. And here's what Aristotle said. He said the most important of the three, you might think it would be logos, the content of the message. He said no. It's, it's ethos. It's the perception that your hearer has of you. That's the way that they listen. So for example, if you're doing conference preaching, or if you're speaking to a, a youth group retreat and these kids don't know you, it's your first time, well what do you do? You probably tell a joke. 
Well, why do you do that? You're building ethos. You're, you're finding something that you can laugh at in common so that it pulls you together. So you're laughing at the same thing. You also, sometimes your humor will be self-deprecatory because you're letting them know, hey, I'm an ordinary guy, you know, you can relate to me. So you're building ethos. And what we learn in rhetoric is that when you're speaking to a strange crowd, they usually make up their mind in the first 60 seconds whether they're going to listen to you or not. That's good to remember if you've got a youth group with a lot of visitors that, I mean, that are floating through. You're building ethos for the first time every time you get up. And it's important to remember your first 60 seconds, a kid, is probably deciding whether you're worth listening to or not. So that's the way you do it with strange crowds. But if you're working with youth group and they know you, or you're a pastor and they know you, you're not building ethos with jokes. You build ethos with your life. That's what determines how they're going to listen to you. It's not whether you're cool, friendly, or connecting with them from the lector. It's whether they perceive your life a life worth listening to. I discovered this 35 years ago. No, 30 years ago. Uh, when I was pastoring at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian. And my predecessor, Dr. George Long, who was still living at the time. He just died last year at 95. George had retired at 65. And I asked him to preach on the anniversary of his retirement, which would be also his birthday, uh, every year. So at Lookout Mountain Church, if you've ever been there, uh, the, uh, basically the way it worked, the, the preacher for the day and the liturgist would go out the middle aisle together after the benediction. The preacher would go to the main narthex to greet the people. The liturgist would go to the little door. Well, normally I go to the narthex because I'm the preacher. But when George is there, I go to the little door. Well, coming out the little door, typically, was the Chapin family, Bill and Joan. And after George preached, Bill came out the little door. I was there to greet him, and I'll never forget what he said. He said to me, Sandy, I know that Dr. Long is not the most sizzling preacher a person's ever heard. But he said, I always want to know what Dr. Long says about anything because Dr. Long said it. I obviously remember that 35 years later. It stuck with me. Because I realized how important my life is. My life is important before the Lord, first of all. It honors and pleases Him or it doesn't honor and please Him. That's the most important thing. But if I'm in ministry, there are other things at stake. And what's at stake is whether the words the Lord has given me out of the text of His Word are going to stick into the hearts of the other people. And I can't be living a, a life that doesn't take Christ seriously. I can't be living a life that's kind of half in, half out. And expect to have fruit in ministry. I'm telling you, a godly life is absolutely essential. Now there's a lot of discussion about soul care and self-care today. We didn't use that language when I was coming through seminary that, you know, 40 years ago. That, that wasn't common language. It's very common now. And certainly it's important to take care of yourself. You should be able to shepherd your own soul. This is one of the most important things to be able to do in ministry is to be fed through your own ministry. And if you're a regular teacher, think about it. You have to listen to yourself a lot. And the question is, are you boring yourself? 
I mean, there's nothing worse than boring yourself. And if I'm telling you what, if you're boring yourself, you're boring me too. And I remember at my ordination, Dr. Donald Mitchell, who was the president of King College at the time, he gave my charge. And one of the things he told me, I remember from 40 years ago, was do not make the gospel boring because it's not. And if it's boring, it's because you made it boring. So we have to be sure that we're on fire with the Lord so that we're excited about the things that are exciting. It's amazing how bored you can get with things that are exciting. You know why you're boring? That's why. You haven't been thinking. You haven't been contemplating. You haven't realized how magnificent this is. To be, like we said over here a minute ago, a child of the living God? You think that's boring? Well, you haven't thought very much. We've got to think. And let our souls be revived on fire. Let live a godly life. Because, really, you know this in youth ministry especially, it's contagious. Things go viral. You want to go viral. You want your life to go viral. You want people actually to imitate you. I know it's scary, but it's better if they imitate you than some figure on TV or in the movies. I mean, you want your life to be something worth imitating. And Paul said it seven times in his epistles. Follow me. I mean, he didn't say follow Jesus. He said follow me. Now, one time he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what he's saying. That my life is centered on Christ. And if you'll follow me, you'll run into Him every day and every moment. Because I'm, I'm with Him. I'm in Him. He's in me. So we should be able to say to the people around us, just come imitate me. I was reading one day a commentary. I don't remember what book of the Bible it was on. I do remember it was Dr. Don Carson. <coughs> Don is a prolific author. I've asked him one time, I said, Don, how do you do all this? He's a New Testament scholar and he writes in other fields. I think, how do you have time as a New Testament scholar to read all this stuff, write scores of books? I said, what time do you go to bed at night? Well, it turns out he gets four hours of sleep every night. But even that doesn't explain it. I mean, he's just a pro... I just thank God for brothers and sisters like this who resource us. And we have no idea what they go through to write these books and help us. Uh, in our Christian ministries and Christian lives. But in one of his commentaries, Don said that when he was a college student, was at McGill University, somewhere in Canada, because he's Canadian, uh, French-Canadian, and Don said that he had a roommate who came from a liberal Protestant background, and his roommate was very aware that Don didn't believe what he believed, and he didn't believe what Don believed. They had two different religions. Let me tell you, Liberal Protestantism is a different religion. We have two different Gospels. They're not the same Gospel. It's not the same religion. Don believed that, but this, his roommate said to him, Don, just look at our lives. You have family that loved you. I have family that loved me. They taught you to live an ethical life. My parents taught me to live an ethical life. Your parents have sacrificed for you and sent you to university. My parents did the same thing. Tell me, Don, what's the difference? Don was a young enough Christian that he, got, he was stumped. So he said, let's go see my friend, graduate student, who's been a Christian longer. Let's go talk to him. You ask him that question. I want to hear what his answer is. So Don took his friend to his graduate uh, school friend, who was a more mature Christian, and Don's roommate asked him the same question. And here's what Don said, his graduate school friend said to Don's roommate. He said, watch me. You come live with me for 45 days. You just watch me. 
and see if you see what the difference is. Don said his first reaction was, wow, that sounds like it. But then Don said, in my older age, I realized, well, that's exactly it. Can you, can you say this? If you can't say this with integrity, let me just say, this is the purpose of your retreat at Josie Davis Park. This is the whole ballgame. For you this week to resolve that you want a life that's marketable. You want a life that, that should go viral. You want a life that you want to be contagious. And give your students something to shoot at. Give them a target. Paul said it seven times in his epistles. Come follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Do what I do. Listen to me. Put it into practice as you see me put it into practice. We've got to do this. The Christian gospel is meant to be communicated. Unlike other academic material that you get in university, it's communicated through people who are so apt, who are living it out, and they demonstrate it. When Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones went to Westminster Chapel in London uh, to be the pastor, here he's, he's been in a smaller church in Wales. He's a Welshman coming to London, the big city, uh, with a fairly well-known church. It was a lot more well-known after he pastored there for a number of years. But the pulpit, it's a beautiful sanctuary if you've seen it. The pulpit, with a high pulpit, and it had a rail around it and a red curtain that hung on that rail. So it was kind of decorative. And the moment Lloyd-Jones got there, he said to his uh, deacon, he said, take off the curtain. Sir? That curtain's been there for years. No, just just take it off. And, and he said, uh, Reverend, why would, why would you like for me to do that? And he said, they need to see my feet. <laughs> Your feet. How blessed are the feet of those who preach good news to me. What's the point? Here's what Lord Jones is saying. If you really believe it, they can see it in every part of your being. You know, John Wesley used to say about why the crowds came to hear him preach. He said, people come to watch me set myself on fire and burn. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to have an extroverted or expressive personality. I'm not talking about that. Don't, don't copy somebody else's personality. I'm talking about within the confines of your weird personality, whatever it is. Does anyone who knows you and listens to you know you're, you're into this? You're living the life. And you can illustrate from your own life. So what happens is as you study the Word regularly through the years, it becomes more and more intuitive to you. Because you've been putting it into practice, the illustrations of your own experience immediately come to mind because you've suffered the consequences of this life You've endured the challenges of trying to put this into practice. It all becomes intuitive to you and you become a much more effective communicator simply because you really believe it and have been trying to do it seriously all your life. That's the most important thing in thriving in ministry is for you to be a thriving Christian. Yes, sir. How much, this is kind of a popular question, but how much is too much as far as what you, you illustrate your life in a sermon especially with both or larger or whatever it is. Um, how much is too much? Because obviously you don't want to set yourself up as always a hero, and then you also don't want to have 
indecent exposure of some of the struggles, but especially generation Z, they, there is that authenticity where building the ethos is also so valuable. How do you balance that level of... Yeah, that's a great question, how you balance this uh, proper disclosure yeah. and personal testimony with not making it all about you. Uh, if you're going to err, err on not making it all about you. That's what I would say. So if you're going to err, err from people saying, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself? That's what I would say. I, I think the danger of displacing the Lordship of Jesus Christ with you is the worst danger. Of the danger of pride and thinking that we're all so fascinated with you and your spiritual pilgrimage. So I would say that's the first thing to get under control. Now having said that, let's talk now about how you do properly disclose. So I need to disclose to the level that you know I mean what I'm talking about. And maybe what I've just already said is an illustration of what I think. Whatever level of self-disclosure, I didn't tell you much about me. But I did tell you about my opinion about what we all should do. And I think you could tell I mean this that I'm serious about it. So I didn't have to give you a bunch of personal stories, either heroic story, stories or failure stories, in order to convince you. So you can just see it in me. And I think that's better. So I can talk about Spurgeon or D.L. Moody or somebody else and how those stories have moved. It's obvious, but I'm talking about them and not me. So I usually don't use personal illustrations. You, you especially have to watch out for the success stories. I think those are usually damaging. Because it makes, it makes this life seem remote and impossible to me when you give me your best success stories as though that's typical of your daily life. Then you have to be careful of the failure stories because is that really typical of your daily life? Are you that much of a flunky? If you become a flunky, then you have to watch out. Are you lowering the credibility of the message that you're delivering? Are you really that bad? What are you doing if they're talking? So there's a balance there so that there's a, there's a genuine joy and sense of victory in the Gospel in your life and also a continuing awareness of your humility. You have nothing to commend yourself but Jesus Christ alone. So whatever it takes to communicate that is, I think, the way to do it. And it is a balance and it's a great question. I, I'm, I know I haven't given you many details, but I think that's the way I frame it up. And every one of our personalities is different. Uh, I've been told by my, good, my really good friend who happens to be the director of our psychological center, <laughs> he says, Sandy, you know, you've got intimacy problems. I said, what do you mean? Me? Watch yourself. So, you know, we all, uh, so if I, if I don't disclose as much, I guess that you know, could be my personality. But then some other guys who are really free to disclose, I'm going, you're boring me. You know, give me something about Jesus. Um, you talk to me about the text. Tell me about my relationship with God, not yours. So that's what you have to watch out for. And it's a sentimentality and a me-centeredness, which brings us back to my concern about some of the soul care discussions of today. Some of the soul care books that are written and discussions that take place, it's really sort of a Christianized version of psychotherapy and we're using therapeutic terms rather than real biblical terms.
terms or even historic terms of spiritual formation, and I just encourage you to watch out for it. We live in a very egocentric generation. We live in a romantic period that really began in the late 19th century. And it's still roaring. It's a roaring fire that no one's put out. So you just have to realize you, you live in a, you live in a, you're, you're swimming in an ocean of romanticism and sentimentality and me-centered thinking. We're very narcissistic. And so when you get a narcissistic president, you shouldn't be surprised. Why do people vote for him? Because they've become, they've become so used to narcissism, it seems like normal leadership. This is outrageous. And we have to know it's outrageous. And so don't let your preaching or your teaching or your ministry be influenced by the incredibly narcissistic culture in which you're living. So watch out for that. And I suggest you might get out of your own era. I just found after I graduated from seminary that the English Puritans were very helpful to me in terms of soul care, what we call soul care. They never called it that. But get out of my own generation. Get into the discipline of taking the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit and applying it to your life. Get out of your own generation. It may seem a little remote to get into another one. But, but learn from them. So I, I, just a, a word on watching out for soul care being me care. Um, why are you caring for your soul? For the glory of God. And for the usefulness of other people. You, you're a, a, a sheep to be fattened, to be slaughtered. That's why you're here. Yeah, there you go. We have still, well, actually, I was going to run the tape, but we have still. <laughs> I was going to ask, uh, are you having anything in mind that you say, you're swimming in the ocean of narcissism? I'm probably pretty blind. So, what, in your experience, what are some of those markers in the ministry? Or maybe those like warning signs? Or, yeah. Maybe you're kind of turning to the left here a little bit towards that. Yeah. Or is blind spot? Okay, that'll lead me right to my second point, and I will answer that question. The second thing after the godly life is a perspective on your ministry, which I would call servant attitude. Once again, here's a football. This is a football. Here we go, fundamentals. But it's a servant attitude. If you want to thrive, you're going to have to move into this modality. And I talked about it last night. And the reason I did, it's in the text, but it's fundamental for my observation. Now, how do you know? What are the symptoms, as you're asking? What are the signs? Let me think about it at the moment. But I, I would say this. <clears throat> when you are framing up what you're going to do with your life, fundamentally based on how do I feel about it? What do I really enjoy? When do I feel like I'm really me? And we have our evangelical ways of putting that in other languages. But we're saying the same thing. I want to be the real me. Watch out. And this is that therapeutic soul care that is, I think, so toxic and taking us away from a servant attitude. Now, it's true. If I'm your boss, and I'm not, but if I were, or I can't imagine being your Lord, but I, if I were your boss, I want you to be doing what you really enjoy doing because I know you're going to do a better job at it. So I do want you to be in a ministry that you're really enjoying. And if I'm your boss, I would try to encourage you to move into a ministry where you, you do feel alive. And you feel like you're using your gifts to the best measure. So I have nothing against that, but it's the framework of thinking about that as though that's the ultimate question. So that you're looking at your ministry as a career track 
instead of your best answer to the Great Commission. So I see it there. It's, it's being very aware of your feelings, very aware of what you consider your needs, what kind of car you're driving, uh, your, your, your bank account. Uh, and then here's another one. And this is, this is epidemic. It's being in ministry really because you enjoy the affirmation you're getting from other people because you're ministering to them. That's one of the biggest challenges for people built for ministry because we're built to serve people. What pleasure do we get out of this? They're, you know, they're limited. We don't make a lot of money doing this. We don't get big titles. We don't get elected to public office. We're actually looked down on by the broader culture. So what's in it for us? Well, people appreciate it. And so you can tell in your own heart and sometimes listening to other people when they're being overly influenced by the affirmation of other people. That's not a servant attitude. That's a you attitude. And so I'm just saying, to thrive in ministry, there's got to be the, the willingness to not be affirmed by anyone except Christ. He's got to be the one that ultimately mediates to you the affirmation, the commendation of who you are and what you're doing. So I would say that's, that's crucial, and you see it certainly with the Apostle Paul. And I'll get to this and how it works out in relationships in just a moment. But let me just say a word here on servant attitude with regard to time management. Once again, if you're into self-care, you're usually taught to make categories for your time. You know, I'm going to be doing ministry on this day, and then on this day I'm going to be with my family, and then on this day I'm going to... It's just going to be a me day. And then on this day, I'm going to do this. I play golf every Friday afternoon. And we're very conscious of not letting ministry just overwhelm your life so that you lose a sense of self. Most people I know, I wish they would lose a sense of self and be overwhelmed by their ministry. They probably would be better off. But uh, I'm only half teasing. Half teasing. The half where I'm teasing is you do need to have a sense of self. The half where I am teasing is I think people will overdo it. They're too protective. The millennial culture in which some of you have been nurtured is very aware of security and safety issues. You see it in every direction. We're aware of security, cleanliness, germs, car seats. I mean, it's just everything. It's just safety and security. It's become a moral principle. If you violate the law with car seats, you are a wicked, wicked person. And I'm half kidding. You are wicked not to take care of your children. But we have really overcooked this. So and what it's, it's security and safety issues. So we become protective. And furthermore, some of us, a lot of us, had fathers who abandoned us. Mine happened to be an alcoholic, which was the old way to abandon children. Uh, in the millennial age, they abandoned you by actually physically leaving the house. So I know what it's like to be abandoned. Not to have a reasonable conversation with your father your entire teenage years after 5 o'clock in the afternoon. So we're left with something. Defensiveness. We've got things that we, we, we say, I'll be damned if that's going to happen to me. If I'm ever going to do that. And we've become defensive. We set up boundaries. And so what you find is we're a boundary creation, a boundary creating culture. Now, boundaries are important. But boundaries are there not to keep people away from you. Boundaries are there to offer a healthy relationship. 
You're actually moving toward people with boundaries because you're not allowing them to come in unhealthy doorways. You're insisting on a healthy doorway so you can have a healthy relationship with them. And we forget that. I would like to suggest another model rather than the boundary and category and box model. And it's what I call the integrated life. So here's how it works. I'm 24-7 a husband. 24-7, not one minute exception. I'm a husband. I want to be a loving and faithful husband 24-7, 365 days a year, 366 on leap year. I am a 24-7 dad. If one of my kids calls me, I, one time I was in a group like this, maybe a little larger, my son called me and I answered him. He said, what you doing? I said, I'm talking to some people and he hung up on me. But that's just illustrious of the fact my kids can get there. I'm 24-7 dad. I'm 24-7 pastor. Even on vacation. I'm 24-7 resting. I'm not waiting for my big sabbatical, which soul therapy people wait for because they're not rested every week. And so they look for some big three-month getaway to finally catch up. That's baloney. You'll never catch up. You're to live a rested life. That's the reason for the Sabbath, Presbyterians. Some of you are not Presbyterians, but those of you who are, you may not be a Sabbatarian, but your church is. So take advantage of it. It's in your confession of faith. I'm not a strict Sabbatarian, but my church is. And our church is Sabbatarian. And I take advantage of it as a non-Sabbatarian. Now, I'm a Sabbatarian in practice, frankly, but I have questions theologically that I shouldn't even mention because now I'm a heretic and I lost my credibility. <laughs> but I am rested. And people say, Sandy, you're such high energy. When do you ever get rest? I say, oh, you just don't know me well enough. My wife knows. Oh, I've got my wife. Uh, I rest. I get alone. I read the Bible. I study. I'm all by myself in my little kingdom of my study, my little 15 by 15 study. And I spend a lot of time with people. And I'm in the hospitals. And I'm preaching. And I'm, you know, leading. 24-7, Pastor. You say, well, how do you do that? Glad you asked. I'm the hub of the wheel of the time management machine. I'm at the hub. I have a bunch of spokes. I call them stakeholders. My wife is a big stakeholder in my life. My five children are stakeholders. My 12 grandchildren are stakeholders. Memphis, Tennessee is a stakeholder in me. Especially the poor and the under-resourced. They're a stakeholder in my life. That's the way I consider it. I'm obligated to. The United States of America is a stakeholder of mine. I care about this country. The mission field, the international mission field, probably ministry in 40 countries in my life. The mission field is a stakeholder in my life. I'm obligated to them. You say, how do you do all this? Well, that's a good question. Okay, I'm negotiating with all my stakeholders. I say, sweetie, you're number one. What do we need to do to have a happy life? What do we need to do for me to be a good husband? She says, well, we're doing fine. But I want to know, am I being a loving and faithful husband? I get that nailed down. And I've realized what kind of flexibility I have with her. Now, my wife 
is what we men sometimes ladies call a low maintenance wife. <laughs> she's just low maintenance. She's merciful. She's flexible. She's so encouraging. So, you know, I have to watch out for her because I can take advantage of her. She's that merciful. So I have to, some people ask me, how in the world do you tell whether Alice is stressed out? I said, I look in her eyes. I know that woman. I've been married for 47 years. I know her. So I can tell her I'm stressing. It's my obligation to be take care of her stakeholders. With the freedom that she allows, then I, I can look at my children, my grandchildren, and then I look at the church. So when the church is stressing me out, I would never say, sweetie, look, I'd love to be home with you tonight, but the church needs me over here. Oh, no, no, no. That's box living. Trying to create boxes and playing them off against each other. No, here's what I say, sweetie. In order to be senior pastor of Second Presbyterian Church, with the limited skills I have, the only way I can see I can do this is put in these kinds of hours. Are you okay with that? Or would you rather I pastor a smaller, less complex church where I can put in less time and have more time available at home? She makes that decision, not me. We came to Second Presbyterian Church, James, because she said so. I was getting ready to tell him no. She said so. So she's a key stakeholder. I'm not in this without full cooperation from her. Then when I go to the session, I don't say to them, you know, guys, I'd, be, I'd love to do that for you, but Allison needs me at home. No, no, no. I just play them off against each other. I don't do that. I say, gentlemen, I took a vow 47 years ago to be a loving and faithful husband, and here's to me what that means, and that's the reason I need to do this. So they're wrestling with me, not my wife. So at the hub of the wheel, I'm negotiating with all the parties and I seek to keep them satisfied and fulfill my duty in each realm. If I can't do that, I start resigning from the secondary stakeholders in order to give preference to my primary stakeholder. I'm the time manager. So for example, my son, well, all my kids played basketball. But when we were in Memphis, one of them played at Memphis University School. Home game at 3 o'clock, it's in my calendar. 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I probably worked about 65 hours a week. But 3 o'clock, two or three times a week, I'm sitting on the bench at a basketball game. Why? That son of mine is a, stake, a big stakeholder in my life, even to this day. Now I sit on the bench watching him coach college basketball. Uh, at the same time, someone goes in the hospital, I eat dinner at home, and then I'm out in the evening going to the hospital. Would you consider family time? I don't consider family time. I consider all time Jesus time. 24-7. All time. Now you say, where did you get that idea? The Gospels. Jesus. Come follow me. He said. And that's what He did. He integrated everything all the time. He didn't ignore His mother. Now He chided her on occasion because He's the Lord. Don't you try it. But when He was dying on the cross for your sins and mine, He took care of His mother. John, now this woman is your mother. Mom, He's your son. He was doing the, he was doing the child thing, the adult child thing, on the cross of Calvary. It's amazing. He just integrated all the time. So what you want to a servant to all your stakeholders. You know by now, if you've changed enough diapers, if you're a parent, you're a slave. 
You are a servant. You are these children's servants. And you're to enjoy that. That, to me, is the category that's missing in people's ministries where they're burning out. They, they, don't, they don't see themselves properly as a butler in a household. They think they're the, the ruler of the house. No, we're all a bunch of servants. Catherine Long, George Long's wife, said to me years ago, Sandy, you'll know if you have the heart of a servant when we see how you react when you're treated like one. Those were good words of advice. You, know, you get to be a youth leader, you've been at this for seven or eight years, you've experienced. Some parent tries to tell you what to do, who do you think they are? The boss. <laughs> You're the servant. You're serving the congregation. You don't always do what they say, I hope. You sometimes confront them, you might even rebuke them. But you do so as a servant, not as a master. I think that's crucial in the ministry of life. And then to enjoy it. When you have that mentality, now, now, you're able to self-assess. There's a, you know, Paul talks about this in Romans 12 when he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And then he goes on in verses 3 and following and says, you know, to serve. And he, if you look at the text, he's telling you, don't think more of yourself than you should and don't think less of yourself than you should. Than you should. You've got to have an accurate self-assessment. That only comes through the humility of being a servant. Because then you're honestly looking at the kingdom and the needs that are out there. You're honestly assessing your strengths and weaknesses. And you're going to Bishop Jesus and saying, where do you want to put me? And you can be more arm's length. Almost an out-of-body experience. Who are you? Well, you're not trying to build yourself up. You're just a servant. And you're trying to figure out where to put the servant. When you figure out how to place yourself, now you're able to place other people. Because when you can self-assess, now you can begin to assess other people. So if you're having trouble self-assessing, get counseling. Pastoral counseling, therapeutic counseling, whatever you need. Or friend counseling. Have people help you learn how to look at yourself so that you know your strengths and weaknesses. Now, when you're in your 20s and early 30s, that's difficult. Because you haven't had enough experience yet really to nail it. By the time you hit 40, you should, you should be self-aware. Meanwhile, you're growing in self-awareness. And there's a humble curiosity about you to find out who you are and what you have to offer. So, for example, in my case now as an old man, I have no excuse not to know. So depending upon my environment, I react differently. I'm a servant. So you invite me here because I have some experience in ministry, and so I, I teach. When I go to a board meeting of the Gospel Coalition with Tim Keller and Don Carson and John Piper, I'm getting a coffee. <laughs> I mean, it's the only natural role for me to take. It's just, it's just, it's just makes it's, it's only thing that makes it's common sense. Why? Self-assessment. You know who you are. So you you assess yourself and how you can contribute to the building of the kingdom uh, wherever you are. That's so important. And it comes through this uh, uh, humility of proper self-assessment. Any comments or questions on that? Okay, let's move to number three. Uh, and this has to do with healthy relationships. Thriving in ministry depends upon healthy relationships. 
360 degrees. And I'm going to talk about some of the angles in that 360 degrees. First of all, if you're married, you've already picked up enough from me to know that I believe strongly that you cannot be effective and fruitful in ministry without a thoroughgoing, soul-to-soul partnership with your married, your, your spouse. Um, when I first uh, entered ministry, it was, I was a solo pastor. And after about three years, I mean, I started at 30. So I was 33. And I came home and my wife was really distraught. Uh, one of the charter elders' wives had planted three dogwood, little dogwood trees in the back of the church. Our manse was connected to the backyard of the church. So we're right there on the property. And our new little puppy went out and ate two of those dogwood trees. It did not go over well with the charter elder's wife. What is wrong with our pastor, his wife, and their family can't even control their own dog? So I come on to my wife. She says, I, I just, I don't think I can take it. I think this is it. And just intuitively, I said, hey, great. I said, you know, when I left Bethlehem Steel Corporation, my boss told me he, he would take me back when I went off to sit in there. I'd love to see if I could get back into the steel business. And, uh, and furthermore, you know what? I'd love to be a ruling elder and have some influence for a change. <laughs> and when I go to the hospital to visit someone, they say, what are you doing here? How kind of you to come to stay at all at your job? Good to have you here. Uh, and, and I started getting real excited. You know, and I, you know, with the education I've had, I, could be, I, could be a, I think I could be an effective Sunday school teacher. And we, could, I mean, we could have a great ministry. I started getting excited about it. And she started getting a little worried. She said, well, just chill out. <laughs> and I said, well, look, sweetie. So I said, look, why don't I come home for lunch tomorrow? And if you feel the same way, I want you to know I, I'm, I'm ready to go. And I, I didn't tell her, but I had enough struggles myself. I mean, that was kind of an invitation. So I came home for lunch the next day, and there's no other way to put it. But she just said, Sandy, it's the wrong time of the month. I'm sorry. And she said, um, look, we're, we're in the right place. Your ministry is solid. I'm going to 100% forgive me for all that. I said, no, no, forgiveness is necessary. I said, sweetie, any time uh, that hits you like that, you let me know because, uh, you know, I, I'm called to be a Christian, not a pastor. So, that was the end of it. But two years later, we were doing a marriage seminar together on a panel with some other people. One of the young women rose to speak and said, my husband's in the seminary. He's really excited about pastoral ministry, but I just don't know about it. And my wife, she said, let me take that question. So she spoke to it. She said, let me tell you what happened to me two years ago. And she told that story. And I'm just sitting here listening to her. And she said that she said, Sandy told me from the beginning it was either both of us or neither of us. I had no reason to doubt it. But after that day, it's rock solid. I know we're in ministry, pastoral ministry, because I believe we should be in pastoral ministry. And she said, I really think that's the way it needs to be. I've been convinced ever since. That's the reason, James, I told you, Allison decided to go to Allison decided what house we're going to live in. <laughs> Allison makes the, those decisions that are preferential. They're not revealed to the Bible. I hope I'll, I'll, I'll try to stick to principle. So I don't do everything Allison says. But in those areas where you've got flexibility, if you're married and you are concerned that you're an overpowering person, 
then you must be very careful to defer to your partner so that your partner is making those decisions with you. Now, I don't think you have to say she's going to make the decision like I did, but that was just because I know I'm expressive and uh, probably pushy, and so it's better for me just to wait on the Lord working through her. So wife and children, and let me say, if you're in ministry and it's not benefiting your family, you have every right to question whether you should be in ministry. Full-time ministry, I mean. We're all in ministry. I said that last night. I'm talking about full-time occupational ministry. It must be to the benefit of your family. Or it's not the right fit. Uh, when Sinclair Ferguson came on one occasion to one of our Christian Life conferences, and then he came to our house for lunch, I think I had three adult children there out of five. He walked into the dining room, and you know, Sinclair's a reticent sort of person. He's kind of shy. But he came out with this question right from the beginning. He said, okay, I want each of you to tell me, what it, what is it like to be a PK? I thought, this is going to be good. <laughs> because my kids are blunt. They get it from their mother. <laughs> and uh, I went around the table, and it was what I predicted. They said roughly, you know, there are some special challenges, and we've experienced all this, but we wouldn't have it any other way. And we're deeply grateful. Now, I'm not saying I predicted that because of pride, although I know I'm a proud dad and I have to wrestle with that. I brag on my kids way too much. But what I'm saying is I predicted it because otherwise I wouldn't have been in ministry, full-time ministry. If I thought otherwise, I'd get out. So it's not just that they're not damaged. Like so many pastors say their families are being damaged, I'm saying, what are you doing in occupational pastoral work? Your first pastoral assignment is at your feet. And if you can't pastor them, what makes you think you can pastor me? So your whole family should be elevated by the ministry of God's Word. Expect that. Demand it. Or find another occupation. That's what I would say. That's how strong I feel about it in terms of healthy relationships. So I expect you to be able to go to my lunchroom table. You ask my kids anything you want to ask them. And we're good to go because we have healthy relationships. And your ministry has to come out. See, you work in concentric circles. Look at the life of Jesus. I said last night, John, his best friend, three really close friends, those valuable men he had, and then 12 apostles, and then 70 at these concentric circles. You get to my family, you're in the inner circle. You have access to them. So go. That's part of my life. It tells you who I am, how I pastor, how I care for people. It shows you my weaknesses. And my kids can tell you those. So I should not be surprised. So if I work closely with you in ministry, you should already know those weaknesses because I told you. And my children will tell you the same thing. It's that kind of open life. That's unafraid of disclosure. You have to get to that point in a godly life with a servant mentality and healthy relationships. So what about relationships in ministry? Well, those have to be humble as well. And I always tell people, you can have almost any weakness you can think of and be an effective ministry staff person as long as you own your weakness. You're the one who tells your closing work, work, closest working mates about your weakness. You take full responsibility for it and don't blame your alcoholic father 
for your, your irritable moods, which children, adult children back on fathers have, and I have them. And I take full responsibility for it. And I want you to know I take responsibility for it. So if you find me irritable, you tell me, God helping me, I'm repentant. So you identify your weakness, you own your weakness, and you teach other people how to manage you in your weakness. And then you can also ask them for help. And that's mutual accountability and caring and sharing in ministry relationships. So the relationships you obtain in ministry are a microcosm of the relationships you want the youth to have among themselves. They need to see you all working this out. Not that they'll know everything. Just like you don't know everything with your parents, hopefully. Hope you don't. But you can see the evidences of it. You know, you see enough to know how your parents work. Well, the ones who are learning from you should see this in your relationships. And those relationships must be growing in health for you to be effective in ministry. You can't do this by yourself. And you can't do it without healthy relationships. It takes constant repentance uh, in this mutual accountability. Now lastly, missional clarity. Missional clarity. Do you know what you're doing? People sometimes don't thrive in ministry because they're not quite sure why they're there. And I just commend to you Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And lo, remember this, I'm with you all the time. Till the end of the earth. There you go. Or Colossians 1.28. I've worked with all His energy that so powerfully works within me. To what end? Verse 28. To present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. Do you know what a mature Christian looks like? Give them a model in your head. I guarantee you, if you go to a good doctor, he has a model of health in his head. Every vital sign he's taken from you, he's comparing it to what he perceives to be healthy. He knows what health is. And when he sees something in you and unhealthy, it comes out just like that. So are you building a model in your early years of ministry? Are you building a model of health? I've got my model that I use. And I just say to new members in our church, here's what we're trying to do. See, produced in you. Can you tell a youth, this is what we want to see by the time you graduate in fourth grade. When I get with our sixth graders, which I do every year in the spring, uh, now it's fifth graders, but it used to be sixth graders going into youth group, I would just say to them, look, I know six years sounds like a really long time to you. It's like a wisp of a moment to me. We only get you for six years. And we've got an objective. We want to produce out of you missionaries to the university campus. That means we've got a lot of work to do. You've got to learn the Bible. You've got to learn some general theology. You've got to begin to deal with the cultural and, uh, and theological questions of the age. You've got to get your life in order, learn how to build good friendships, and learn how to be strong against opposition. And we've got to get you on the mission field, the local mission field and the foreign mission field so that you are a global Christian by the time you get to college campus. Honey, are you ready for this? We're ready for it if you're ready to sign up. We want every single one of you signed up. And for that reason, you've got to be in Sunday school. You've got to be in youth group because we're on a mission and we're preparing you to go into service. Do you, you have this mentality with your youth? Are you, are you in warfare? So a missional clarity is very important. And then not only just go ahead and open the floor. I've talked, long, I've talked too long, but we've got 12 minutes. 
before we have to dismiss, and we'll start with your, your comment. Um, what would your encouragement be? I'm trying to think of a gracious way to say this. When the missional clarity that you were convinced of or that you feel strongly about is not shared by or championed by other people in leadership in the church. Thank you very much for that question. I know this is a big deal for everybody, almost everybody in youth ministry. You always feel a little tension between the essence of what you see being done and what the senior leadership is seeing in the church. That's a very, very common issue. And it's very difficult for you. You're in, in terms of the hierarchy of influence, you're in a junior position. Now, if you're a youth director over a staff and you've been there a while, you may begin to have a senior position. But most of the time, youth workers have what we call a junior position. You don't have executive uh, influence. Sometimes you don't even have access to executive meetings. So it's difficult. Here's what I think you do. You do the best you can to develop what you believe is a God-honoring vision for mission and ministry in your setting. And then you take responsibility to manage down to those who are your inferiors, that is the students themselves that you're leading, across to your peers and up to your supervisors. Every Christian must manage in three directions. Now, of course, managing up has some special challenges and you must be very respectful, non-demanding, but just because you're not demanding doesn't appeal to mean that you're not appealing or asking. So, like I said to you last night, if you have a healthy environment, I realize all the environments you're in are not healthy. There's no way they group this size and it represents all healthy environments. In a healthy environment, your senior leadership wants to know your opinion, wants to have your influence, because if it doesn't, the church is not going to be healthy. He knows that. If it's not good for the kids, it's not good. Anybody should be able to see that, but they don't. So you have to keep advocating. So put your big boy pants on, your big girl pants on. And in a respectful way, let's take it as part of our servant role to advocate respectfully, not demanding your own way, advocating respectfully up the hierarchy in your church. That's part of your job. Why is it part of your job? The welfare of the kids depends upon it. You're not arguing for your sake or because you want to have a great youth group and be able to write books on it. You're trying to care or shepherd these people. And they happen to be younger and they happen to be vulnerable. And they don't have a voice at the executive team. They don't have a voice at the session. Even their dads don't even know what's going on half the time. You do. So you've got to take that as a responsibility. You don't always win the arguments. Your responsibility is to present the arguments, not to win them. Remember this. Your job is not to win the argument. Your job is to present. Present the argument in the most winsome way. And when you do, you will get some arguments back. And a lot of times youth leaders don't want to enter this because they know they're going to get criticized. Well, you know, you're saying that about us, but let me tell you about what you didn't do last week. You know, when the kids tear up the, the parlor, what do you expect our people to do? And you're going to get it up. It's all going to come back on you. And so you don't even want to get into it. Shame on you. 
Big boy pants, big girl pants. Yeah, I know, we screwed up the, the parlor last week and we cleaned it up and we raised $500 to replace the broken chair. I hope that was okay. Now, back to the point. Okay? So, we need adults who are leading students. And we need adults who will come to the table. Respectful, kind, humble, but come to the table. So, basically, the number one influencer on the level of influence you have is yourself. The number one source of respect your ministry will have is your self-respect for your ministry. If you believe what I'm saying and really believe it and wear it, the senior minister is going to start believing it himself. So, so often it's your own low self-esteem that keeps you from influencing the overall direction of the church on behalf of the youth. It's your low self-esteem. You don't want to come to the table. You don't want to take the heat. You don't want to be criticized. So you back off. Now, once again, I understand most youth workers are younger than most people on church staffs. So there is a place for respect and deference, carefulness. And I know I'm an old man, and so I'm speaking over confidently. I understand all this. I'm, but I'm trying to build you up and say, come on, y'all. Let's, you've got to be convinced yourself that this ministry is vitally important to the ministry of the overall church. Now, if you believe that, your kids are going to be in church for the worship services. You're going to be there too. You're going to stress that. You're going to integrate your youth work with church work. Everybody's going to see that, hey, it's cool to have a good youth group because, man, it, it, I can hear the singing. When we sing songs rather than hymns, as Second Presbyterian, that whole group brings them. Brings them. Yeah, you can tell they're in the room, man. In the evening service. Evening service. So you be sure that you're integrating the kids into the overall life of the church. See that at times they read the scriptures on a Sunday morning. See that there's a little ensemble of your kids that sing every once in a while. You read the scriptures every once in a while on a Sunday morning. You get involved in the adult life of the church. Let them see because why? It's important. It's a family, multi-generational family. So a lot of it comes out of your angle of leadership with the church. If you tend to be isolated, don't expect them to really understand how important it is. So if you'll integrate and keep appealing to integrate everything else, they'll start integrating toward you. And furthermore, you know, as I said last night, youth problems are family problems. So if you don't have access to the adult pastoral strategies, you're, you've got one hand tied out. If there's no church discipline for parents who are negligent, if there are no elders that are going to intervene, you've got a hand tied out. So you've got, to, you've got to win friends and influence people. You, you, you've got to get involved and mix it up with people. That's what I was saying. Does that help? Very much so. Okay. Yes, sir. Uh, well, I've, uh, to your question, Matthew, I've found anytime you have a solution or initiative that you feel like can take some heat and feel like it's the right thing to do, uh, it's so tempting to barge in and ask, can we do this? I know it's unpopular. Take the heat and see if we can make it happen. And it seems like if you ask your elders and your pastors, here's the problem that I'm trying to solve. What are your thoughts? And it's, it's not that uncommon that they come up with the same unpopular solution and it's their idea. 
And, uh, and then they task you to bring it. And, uh, and then you say, if it's the right thing to do, yes, sir. You know? And uh, so, so sometimes just having the trust that if, you're, if your elders are aware of the problem, they're actually going to shepherd the flock that they've been entrusted by God and ordained to shepherd. And uh, make your problems their problems as much as you can. And, uh, and then be the go-getter that says, all right, I'll, I'll do what we say. That's a great comment. We, now, in Second Presbyterian, we eventually, uh, because our youth ministry, when I first got there, really declined. I mean, here's a church of 3,500 people, and we got about 15 senior heights in, in a group. And I'm doing it because nobody else will take it. So I did what you did. I taught a youth group in a 3,500-member church for about a year. I'm going, what's wrong with this picture? We have 40 elders, ruling elders, on the session. So here's the rule that our session made when they were asked about this problem. They decided nobody can serve on our session unless their teenagers are actively involved, not just in Sunday school, but youth. And uh, so that's the kind of integration we want. Because we said this. None of those... No, here was the problem. Here was the problem. None of the elders had their kids in that youth group. I'm looking around. Where are your kids? I'm teaching them. They're not there. So we made we flat made a rule. So, uh, and when your kids are in the youth group and it's not healthy, you're going to get on the move. So, it, it does take commitment on both sides, and that's a great comment, though. But let's just ask, and you will obviously get eventually get comments. You had a, did you have a comment? Yeah, I was going to ask uh, the sermon today. Uh, so I've gotten to know a lot of other youth folk in and uh, I, it sounds like you're saying like kind of the meter moves. Like the distinction between being certain having a attitude and then being taken advantage of, like this is going to sort of play. It sounds like for husbands and wives, the meter is how this affects your family, uh, how to kind of decide if yeah. maybe just yeah. a bad situation you get out of. Yeah. My question is like, for a single person. Yeah. What's the latest test for that? Because most often, I'm sitting across the table from people in various parishes, ministries, or there's some student ministries in the church in the city, and it's not a horrible environment. But you have this tension of like, we'll be a servant, but also going to be abused, just to be abused. That's right. So how, do, how do you decide? Yeah, I think, well, first of all, uh, it is a special case with a single person. If you have a family, I mean, I. I'm, in the Bible, it tells me I have to take care of my family. It doesn't tell me I'm supposed to pastor a church. So it's a no-brainer for me. If I can't feed my family, I'm out of here. Go flip hamburgers. Now, if I'm single, I have the right to suffer as much as I want to because others are not suffering with me uh, and I'm not, I'm not hurting, damaging them spiritually. And if I take it on as a spiritual discipline, great. But I'm likely to do that when I consider the relationship between me and the senior pastor to be healthy, and I consider his leadership to be healthy. Which means, I could go to him and say, Hey Bob, look, you're paying me $25,000. I do know that most people in my area, you know, forty-five, fifty thousand maybe. Uh, could you tell me why that is? Because I'm concerned that it's, it could be a form of injustice you know, on our personnel uh, strategies. And it's just not healthy for us. You know, and if you want me to give half my salary away, I'll be glad to consider it. But I just, I'm not sure it's healthy for this church to be paying someone $20,000 and I'll be making $45,000. What do you think? Oh, you're just being selfish. 
That's an unhealthy church. So then you have to ask yourself the question, should I be doing ministry in a place where it's going to be succeeded by an unhealthy person because the only person who can come here is an unhealthy person? So still, it's, you're thinking about other people. Now, I realize it's very difficult to do that when your salary's at stake. But that's the way you have to train your mind. So it's, it's a matter of health. Now, if he says, I know, I'd love to pay you $45,000. I have every intention to. Right now, we're $500,000 in debt. I don't know how to get out of this. Can you hang in there with me? Yeah, man. I'm right by you. Got your side. What's your side? Are you hanging in there with me? Are you, cut, are you being paid half what you're worth? Okay, I'm with you. Now there's a healthy situation. We're sacrificing. I'm a single man and my wife's not being starved. I'm in it. I'll starve myself a little bit to do this. So it's a matter of assessing health outside of yourself and your own personal want. So for example, when I retired, how do you make that decision? The older guys always ask me that. The, the bottom line, simple answer is you figure out what is in the interest of these people. Because if you've been ministering like I did for 22 years and you have good relations with people, they're never going to tell you to retire. They're going to tell you they want you to stay. But you have an obligation to make a decision that's in their interest. And you have to put your interests aside. So I didn't even look at my finances until I decided to retire. And then I went to a financial consultant and said, what did I just do? <laughs> <laughs> Am I okay? <laughs> do I need to go get a secular job? What am I going to do? He said, oh, I don't know, though. They've taken care of you. You're fine. Okay, fine. Uh, but you make a decision. And I, the reason I didn't consider my own finances, I did not want to be influenced by it. Like, how long do I need to work with a in nice income from a nice big church like that? That's not the question. The question has to be what's in their interest. And I just think if you take that servant attitude, if that's framing it up for you, you generally will come up with the right answers. We've run out of time. Thank you all so much. You've been a very attentive group. More importantly than that, you're a very effective, fruitful, hardworking group out there in the Hustings, and I'm really, really grateful. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all the students that we serve. We pray that they will grow up to be missionary-minded men and women whose lives make other disciples. You'll give us the pleasure, Lord, please, of being some little part of the work you're doing in their lives. Help us, we pray, with a godly life, a servant attitude, healthy relationships, and missional clarity from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.